0: Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And as we turn to your word, as we turn to these words that you inspired by your Holy Spirit and gave to Luke the evangelist, we ask that it would be indeed the evangel to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would dwell within us and prepare us to receive these words with understanding that we might give glory to him that is your beloved, that ought to be, and by your grace is, our beloved as well. We ask in the name of Christ that you would do these things for us. Amen. Hear now the reading of the Lord's word. Uh, In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also, being baptized and praying, the heaven was open, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. The grass withers, and the flower fades, and the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Amen. Here we have the, uh, the, the one event that is common in the first three Gospels that mark the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, the reason why uh, Luke holds off Jesus' genealogy until this moment, because that's what comes immediately after the passage I have just read, is because this is when he turns his focus onto Jesus himself. It had been the the origin and the parents of John the Baptist, and then the origin of Jesus himself, but with the focus upon uh, Joseph and Mary and the events surrounding uh, his birth, it turns then to John the Baptist's ministry in the first of chapter 3, and here in transition uh, we begin to focus, and Luke does focus, upon the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is where the, uh, the Gospel of Mark begins, uh, the record of Jesus' ministry. This is his anointing. Uh, if you notice that Luke, unlike Matthew and, and unlike even Mark to a certain extent, doesn't put the emphasis on the baptism of Jesus Christ, uh, but rather upon the testimonies which occur at the baptism of Jesus Christ. The heavens are open, the Holy Spirit in the shape, the form, the, uh, the appearance, uh, is all good ways of translating that Greek word uh, of the, the bodily image of a dove, alights upon our Savior, uh, the Christ And then from heaven comes the testimony of the Father himself. So we have the testimony of the Holy Trinity. This is one of those places that that theologians turn to to show some of the nuances of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. But so that the the testimony could be confirmed in the mouth of one or two witnesses, two or three witnesses, we have the testimony of John the Baptist that comes from the testimony of the Father and the Holy Spirit there. That this is Jesus Christ. So in his baptism, we see Christ, we see Jesus as the Christ. This is the first place where it is evident to all. Now, Mary had been told that the child she was bringing forth would be the Christ. And the shepherds had been told that the child that they were going to see in Bethlehem was the promised Christ. But with Mary, the emphasis is not on his role as Christ, but upon who he is, that he is the son of God coming as also the son of man in the flesh, Uh, that Jesus, when he was a 12-year-old boy, was son of God and son of man in that great mystery of that hypostatic union uh, with the divine and human natures, was nevertheless growing up and maturing And entering into his stage. And he wasn't there as a teacher. of the rabbis. But he was there studying the word. He had not yet been anointed. As the Christ. He has not yet taken. That office. For which he came into the world. To accomplish. But at his baptism. Which for him is an anointing. He enters in. And he is shown forth to be the Christ. And we see this in two images, as we've mentioned, and we'll look at them in their order. We see them first as the coming down of the Holy Spirit upon him, and then also the testimony of the Father from the heavens. Uh, In the first part of verse 22, we read that the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. Uh, we read elsewhere that it abode upon him, that it wasn't just an image for the moment. Not that it remained an image, but that the, holy, the dove did not light upon him and then litter away somewhere else. But it was there and remained in him. And this shows that he is equipped for that work that he will do. It is not without reason that when, after the genealogy and Luke returns to the ministry of Jesus Christ, that he begins with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then after his temptations, And verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about, that he was being equipped for this work that he would do. This we read is in accordance with prophecy. We read about this already in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, says Jesus Christ. And there's testimony to this. The world saw it. Those that came to be baptized to John when when Jesus was baptized by John, saw this. John saw this. And we know that he's the one that has been anointed, that is christened, that is, is made the Christ to preach the gospel unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of our God and the day of vengeance of our God. Also to comfort those that mourn, and appoint them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of anoint joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified, and that they shall build the old wastes, that the old faithfulness that was remembered of old shall be restored, that the church would yet again have the presence of the Lord in her midst, not in its building of a temple, but in their hearts. This is what the Holy Spirit is there dwelling upon Christ to do, to give his human nature that full power and, and authority matches divine nature. And as he receives, so he gives. After all, uh, John has already told us that the one coming after him would not baptize with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, verse 16. But but if he is to do this, then he needs to receive so he may give. If you turn to the gospel of John in chapter one and hear the testimony hear, hear John's own report about this event. And his understanding and the interpretation of it. Uh, in John 1 verse 32. John the Baptist says. And John bore record saying. I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And it abode upon him. It remained upon him. And I knew it not. But he that sent me to baptize with water. The same said unto me. Upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining on him. The same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bore record that this is the Son of God. This is a testimony to us of the power and the role of Jesus Christ. It was a testimony to John the Baptist as well. It was a confirmation of his ministry. It was a a fulfillment. And so from that point forward, he fades, and Christ is magnified, as we will see a little bit when we turn to John 3. But it comes down as a dot. His anointing it could have come in many symbols. It comes upon the church in tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost as an apt symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit. It is often referred to uh, in the Psalms and other places as even our text in, in Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4 and verse 3 as an oil of joy and gladness. It is pictured in the prophecy of Ezekiel as the waters sprinkled upon the people. And so baptism itself is a picture of this. But he comes in a dove form to show just the way that Christ would exercise this power and authority. That he would be meek and peaceable. As Jesus tells his disciples, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Not harmless, but meek. As, as doves, and, and this too is in fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah 42, the first three verses, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom is all my delight. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. But he shall not cry, nor lift up his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoldering flax shall he not quench? He shall bring forth judgment of the truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. He comes first in the meekness of mercy. That when Christ conquers with that two-edged sword, yes, there is a judgment that always comes in the, the wake of the gospel. But it comes initially and primarily and intentionally as gospel. As good tidings, as glad news, as mercy, as love. And if we are humbled there and receive, then we receive Christ as our Savior and our conqueror, who conquers in order to liberate, who conquers in order to build up, who conquers and uh, brings in. To submission our will so that he might make us priests and kings unto our Lord God and our Savior. Uh, to our, well, to him as well, but to the Father. That he comes in, in meekness not as the conqueror that the world expects. Not as the Jews of Jesus' day wanted and desired. And perhaps still want a Caesar to match the Caesar of the world. But as a dove as one who comes in mercy, as one who does not lift up his voice in the streets, as one who is so tender with the sinner uh, that he doesn't quench that smoking flax. He doesn't uh, finally break that reed that has been uh, snapped and is barely hanging on, but he repairs and restores and causes to flourish. This is the testimony, the way that Christ would exercise his ministry and a power different from all others, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Godhead, and with mercy. And then we see, secondly, the testimony of his pleasure in his Son from the Father. Uh, This is one of the reasons why in that passage that we read from John 1, that John is able to say... I knew him not until he came upon him. And then I realized that this isn't just a man that has been set apart for an amazing piece of work. This is not a prophet after the order of prophets. This is not a priest after the order of priests. This is something new. This is the Son of God. Because the Father comes. He says, this is my beloved Son. In thee I am well pleased. Verse 22. He's as pleased with his son, just in the same measure, and because, not because but as the son is pleased to do his father's will. We saw in chapter 2, verse 21, his retort to his mother, don't you know I'm about my father's business? One of the things that he tells his disciples, that he also tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees, That my food is to do my father's will. My glory is to do my father's will. My heart and my desire is to do my father's will. And that includes going to the cross and dying for those whom he loves. In Psalm 45, a messianic psalm, looking to uh, the Christ and his church, the bride... Uh, The psalmist writes, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellow. And here we have that picture drawn forward to it. Notice that the, the address in Psalm 45, 6 and 7, it's to God. And then he also says, therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee. And with this, the oil of gladness, which is one of the images of the Spirit and the giving of the Spirit, we see in Isaiah 61 as well. Although this is probably either a psalm of David or Solomon, and therefore before Isaiah. That we have here that picture of that mutual delight that the Father has with the Son and the Son with the Father. So when we contemplate the mystery of our salvation and what Christ does on our behalf, we should be very careful that we're not thinking of it That he comes and dies and is raised again and bears the wrath of God in order that God will love us. He says, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. It's because he loves us. But that doesn't mean that his wrath is not laid out against us because of sin. And we make that distinction. That the son doesn't make the father love us. The father loves us. That's why he's given us the son. And the son loves the father. That's why he's doing this on our behalf. That there's a mutual love there because it is one God. He is one God, I should say. And it, in this mystery of the three in one and the one in three, there, there comes to be another mystery where sinners of all people are brought into that love through the beloved, through the one in which, in whom Uh, The Father is well pleased. Believers find God's pleasure only in this beloved. Paul picks up on this title that the Father has given the Son. And in Ephesians chapter 1, it's a a fairly long passage. That first paragraph or the second paragraph there, verses 3 through 14. But pay attention to what Jesus says about... Christ's role and what he does, particularly with the Spirit that is given. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined unto us the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That pleasure that the father has in the beloved. Then all those who are in the beloved receive that same pleasure and are accepted in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded to us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him, and whom also we obtain an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, after that ye believed you were sealed with that holy spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance into the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Notice how Paul takes everything that we receive and we receive it in Christ. Everything that the Father has purposed for us. And he's speaking of election and predestination. And we have on full display the power and independence of God above. And how he focuses on his beloved, his son, all the glory that he will give. When he glorifies you and me, when he's doing you good and me good. The Father is primarily working his own glory there because he's lifting up the son. Just as... Uh, The wife is is normally construed, and it's not popular to say in today's egalitarian view of things, but but generally speaking, the husband and wife, they become one flesh, and the glories and the honors and the possessions of the husband belong equally unto the wife. She shares in his glory, and she shares in his ruin. The church is the bride of Christ, and when we... See that the father is exalting his son. We need to understand, and it's throughout not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, that that is also the church's glory. That we also are bound up in that so that Peter can say we share the divine nature, not that we become God, but that we are married to Christ. And all that is his is ours. This is why when Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room in John uh, 15, he says, when I go up to my father, you will pray in my name. I don't say that you will pray for me and I will pray to the father on your behalf. I say you will pray directly to the father in my name and he will hear you. He goes on. That's one of the most exacting phrases that come out of Jesus's mouth. Correcting a misunderstanding before it comes and he's wanting us to understand the power and the privilege of prayer and the intimacy that we have with the Father because we are his. That all that we... We don't even have to... We go through his name, but we don't have to beg him to beg the Father. We go directly to the Father. Because the Son is the beloved of the Father. Because the Son has uh, that, that... all the pleasure of the father therefore as sin shut up heaven and shut up paradise so christ comes into the world opening heaven and therefore that sign before the the holy dove comes down before the, the, the voice from heaven speaks. We see heaven open sort of a precursor at the beginning of his ministry before at the climax of his ministry the veil in the temple is writ and the holy of holies is exposed and made. We wouldn't say common, but we would say open to the people of God as it had been closed. This is, uh, this is the sign that accompanies verse 21. Again, Going back to John, this is his own interpretation. And John the Baptist speaking in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 31, to the end of the chapter. He says, he that cometh from above is above all. His disciples, John's disciples have wondered why he's he's not competing with Jesus. And, And he says, you know, he must increase, but I must decrease, verse 30. And then he goes on to explain, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. How did John know that he came from heaven? Because the heavens were opened unto him. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set his seal that, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. In other words, He has the fullness of the Spirit. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Where did this thought come to John? Perhaps under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, certainly. But he actually heard the Father say this. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And therefore he could say, He that believes on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him still. That's the, that is the way that this testimony has shaped the preaching of John the Baptist. And it's the way we ought to receive the testimony as well. That we need to understand that Christ is glorified as the Christ. That Jesus is anointed to be Christ for the sake of his church. That they might participate in that pleasure that the Father has in the Son. It's because of this, I think, that Luke is the only one that records the fact that this happened as Jesus prayed after his, or in answer to prayer, after his baptism. We don't know exactly what he was praying for, but usually when we have a record of someone praying and then events happen following, it's, it's an indication that this is an answer to prayer. And so heaven is open on his behalf. Perhaps he prayed as he often did pray by gospel record, That the Father would make known his love to the Son. That he would open the eyes of his disciples. That he would open the eyes of the Pharisees. That his glory would be made evident in his Son. And if that was the prayer of Jesus, we see that the Father indeed speaks at his Son's intercession. That heaven is open to confirm his work, not just to Christ, because Christ didn't need it. But we needed that confirmation, that Christ wasn't a charlatan, that Christ wasn't a megalomaniac, that Christ wasn't delusional, that John the Baptist wasn't mistaken. John needed the confirmation. We need the confirmation. And at the Son's intercession, we have what we need from the Father, And the Father makes known his pleasure on Christ, not just as an academic point. He doesn't say it, but he doesn't need to say it. Just as Jonah didn't go to announce the destruction of Nineveh, simply that they might know that they're about to be destroyed, but rather that they might repent, and Jonah knew that and didn't want them to repent, and so went away, he acted on that firm belief, recognized, and we're told that in the book of Jonah, just so, when the Lord says to Jesus Christ, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's what he says to John. But this is, Thou art my Son, in whom I am well pleased. My beloved. Then we need to understand that that is revealed not just for a little datum of information. But that is given to us to act upon it. If this is where the Lord's pleasure is, And we want the Lord to be pleased with us. Then this is where we need to direct our attention. The Father's pleasure is made known that we might look unto Christ and nowhere else. As Peter says, in no other name is given under heaven is there salvation, Acts 4.12. Because in no other name do we know the Father and his love to us Jesus says, 14, 6 of the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one cometh unto the Father but by me. No one knows that the Father loves the world and gave his only begotten Son for the world except through the Son. That's where the revelation comes from. That's where we have to be. And so Paul is not exaggerating when he says that we are accepted in the Beloved When he makes every grace, every move, every decision, every counsel of God to resound to his church, not independently, but only as it relates to Jesus Christ. That in Christ, there is no mercy in Christ. There is no predestination in Christ. There is no grace. Everything is brought to that point of Jesus Christ. Because that's the truth. That's who the Father loves. He is the express image of the Father. And therefore, the most glorious and lovable image is that glorious God. And he is, delights in the contemplation of himself. And he delights about the contemplation of himself in Jesus Christ, and it's only right for him to do so. But in that, when the church is united by the invitation of that love, to find her holiness and justice and goodness in that Christ, to find her good, clothed not in her own righteousness, which are filthy rags, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they can know full well that God the Father delights in, that, in the contemplating of his love then to her as the bride of his son, as, as the church of the living God. Uh, That that pleasure is your pleasure, is pleasure in you and delight in you. That as Christ is the beloved, so is the people of Christ beloved. And those who trust in him are made acceptable in the beloved. This is the picture. This is what is testified to at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is what is confirmed in his preaching. This is what is confirmed when he enters in upon that great act, when he offers himself as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is what is made evident when the doors of death are unable to hold him and he walks out conquering death and therefore sin for the sake of his people. And that's what happens when he ascends into heaven and even now holds his church in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trial. God is working all things for good who love him and are called according to his purpose is the apostolic testimony and it is the truth. And therefore our good, the only nourishment of our souls is this Christ, And as we contemplate that, we come to the table uh, to partake of the bread and the cup that are signs and seals of God's benefits to us in his death. To seal to us that pleasure that he has in the beloved. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. In his name alone are we accepted in his name alone are we victorious. In his name alone are we cleansed and made worthy to receive your mercy. And we ask your Lord that from that everlasting love that you have given us in Christ Jesus, that you would confirm it now as we approach the table, as we receive from that altar once given at the cross many millennia ago, That we would receive it fresh again into our bodies, into our hearts, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.